If you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 to 34, so it's the whole chapter. As Jackie just read out of Numbers chapter 32, uh, it talks about be sure that your sin will find you out. That's what Numbers 32, 23 tells us. But in the case of this story, we could say be sure your Cheetos will find you out. During the early morning hours of January 6, 2013, county deputies were called to the Cassette Country Store in Cassette, South Carolina, to investigate a burglary. The deputies determined that someone had broken into the store and stolen beer, cigarettes, snack foods, and energy drinks. The burglar only stole $160 worth of goods but caused about $2,500 in damages. The store manager, Howard Buck Buckholtz, said... He knocked out our front door, he knocked out the beer cooler and stole beer, cigarettes, Slim Jims, and in his haste, he punctured two or three bags of Cheetos. That was the burglar's undoing. Buckholtz said Cheetos were all over the parking lot, at the place where he parked his car, and at the residence. The police followed the trail of cheesy dust right to the house where the burglar was, staying with a friend. As investigators approached the front door of the home, they observed more fresh Cheetos on the front porch. Buckholtz added... He was very easy to catch. It was a very quick deal. (laughs) So be sure your sin will find you out, right? And we're going to see that today in this passage of Scripture as well. But we're also going to see a change of mind and heart and attitude with Joseph's brothers. And when I think about a change of mind, I think about what happened uh, in my life I had a change of mind about communicating our financial standing with our boys. When our boys were younger and they would ask us if, they could, if we could buy a certain item um, that was more expensive, my go-to answer was always, we don't have any money for that. That wasn't necessarily true. I always thought that was a good answer, but it left our boys thinking that we were poor. <laughs> we weren't poor. At least I didn't think we were. When our oldest son was college age, he read a book about finances, and the author said something profound that he shared with Judy and I, and I wish I would have known earlier. The author said that instead of saying, we don't have the money for that, we should say, we are choosing not to spend our money on that. Big difference there. And like I said, I wish I would have read that book earlier and started telling my boys that, uh, that we didn't have the money instead of uh, that we didn't have the money. Like I said, we actually had the money, but it was in savings, and we were just choosing to spend it on uh, other items and not on those things. And it would have helped them to understand that we were not poor. Now, we are frugal, but we're not poor. We're not wealthy, but God always provides. Over the years, uh, God has also changed my heart as it pertains to his plan, purpose, and timing. In the past, I would just fight like crazy to try and accomplish something, even when barriers kept preventing me from doing so. Like Things would happen, and I couldn't get this thing accomplished, and I was like, what's going on? And I get so frustrated trying to just accomplish it in my, in my own strength. But by God's grace, I more readily acknowledge that something uh, that uh, may not be God's timing when I can't seem to accomplish what I would like. And so now I'm just like, okay, well, I'm not going to keep forcing the the issue there. I've learned to trust him for his timing, plan, and purpose. And it took many years of heartache and wasted time on my part to have a change of heart to trust God always. I hope that's not the case for you. I hope it doesn't take a lot of years. Every one of us can probably recall a time in our lives when we had a change of heart. 
So I want you to take a moment just to reflect on one of those times. Just think about that in your mind. When was the time where I had a change of heart? Perhaps it was about an individual. You thought that they were a certain way, and you found out later that they weren't that way. Maybe it was a teacher or a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, even a fellow church attender. Maybe the change of heart took place concerning a restaurant or another business. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have all experienced a change of heart from a rebellion to repentance. We've all experienced that change of heart. Joseph continued to test his brothers to see if they had a change of heart. 22 years before, they were dealing with selfishness, jealousy, envy, anger at the favoritism shown to Joseph. Have they grown? Have they been transformed? How would they react to Benjamin being the favored son? Would they stand by him and protect their father's feelings, or would they abandon him and watch their father fall deeper into despair and probably death? What we'll see today are hearts transformed by God, which leads us to our big idea is that God transforms our hearts. Aren't you grateful for that today? As we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we just come to you today. We thank you that you are God Almighty. There is nothing that's impossible for you. Lord, you do the work through your Holy Spirit of just transforming our hearts and our minds. You do that uh, not only initially as you're calling us to be your child, to experience everlasting life, but Lord, you continue to do that in our lives as we just submit to you. You change our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our actions as we understand your word more and more and more. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that even today, that you would transform hearts, attitudes, and actions today as we study your word. And so, Lord, we just lift it up to you. We pray that you would speak through your servant today. Would your people hear your voice because you are the good shepherd. You are God Almighty. And we want to hear from you. As we ask this in your precious son's name, amen. Now, the titles for the two main points and the sub-points, just the titles, come from Warren Wearsby's commentary simply because he did an incredible job of, job of alliteration. I couldn't come up with anything better than this. So when you see the titles, you'll understand uh, for the two main points and then the subtitles. But I wanted to give him credit today because it came from his commentary. But let's look at the first point. There's just two points. The first one is confrontation, and the second one is uh, confession. But under confrontation, before we go to the passage itself, um, the first uh, sub-point is overjoyed. And so Joseph's brothers had a lot to be joyful about. They were not arrested for stealing the grain money, but were told that God had given them treasure in their sacks. We've learned that over the past couple of weeks. Simeon and their brother that was uh, imprisoned until they went home and brought Benjamin back had been released from prison. Benjamin had been safe during their travels. That was uh, Jacob's concern. He said, I'm going to die in sorrow if, if something happens to Benjamin. They were getting ready to leave for home. They were feasting and drinking freely with the ruler of Egypt. That's Joseph. And the ruler of Egypt was sending them home with sacks full of grain. Everything seemed to be just peachy, right? Everything was going so well. What they didn't realize was all that was a facade. Joseph had a plan 
because he wanted to see if there had been a change of heart. Everything was about to change. And so we see that they are overtaken. That's verses 1 to 6. So let's look at those together today in Genesis chapter 44. This is what God's word says. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. He's doing it again, right? Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. And so we see these poor brothers, they're overtaken. Joseph had given his steward some instructions as the feast was probably winding down that uh, previous evening. He said, fill their sacks with as much food as they can carry, put their silver back in the mouths of their sacks, and put my silver cup in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. That's Benjamin. And Joseph's steward did everything that he was asked to do. Now the next morning when they wake up, Joseph's brothers were sent on their way with their donkeys, um, but they didn't get very far. Outside of town, Joseph gave his steward more instructions. He says, go after those men at once. When you reach them, ask them why they've repaid good with evil by taping, taking my silver cup that I drink from that I use for divination. It's likely that Joseph had used the silver cup in their presence at the feast. They would have known what it was. It would have been easy for one of them to conceal the silver cup in their robe and then stick it in their sack to carry it home with them. And as we think about divination, using a silver cup for divination was part of the culture of the day, especially by those in positions of authority. There were a couple forms of divination using a, a goblet or a cup. One kind was oleomancy, which is pouring oil into water. So there'd already be water in that goblet, and they'd pour oil in there. Then there's hydromancy, which is pouring water into oil. So there'd be oil in the cup, and they'd pour water in, into it. And then the final kind was laconomancy, which is observing the actions of liquids in some kind of a container, like the ripples of reflections. So as they poured water into, or some kind of liquid into this cup or goblet, they would see how it rippled, what it reflected, and things like that. Hamilton says, when water and oil are mixed, configurations form which are then studied and interpreted by the diviner. Now, divination uh, was used to understand what the gods wanted concerning the future. Maybe the source of trouble that they were going through, whether someone would live or die, whether or not to go to war, and many other matters. They would just pour water and oil together or another drink or something like that. And it's unlikely that Joseph actually used divination since he received a revelation from God alone. We see that in Genesis 37, 5 to 9, and in chapter 41, verse 16. Like God is speaking to Joseph. He's giving him these dreams. He's allowing him to interpret dreams. God's speaking to him, so he doesn't need a cup with different liquids in it. So it's probably all part of the ruse that Joseph was creating to make sure his brothers didn't recognize him before he was able to determine if they had had a change of heart. He's like, he doesn't want to you know, reveal his hand yet. And so Joseph Stewart did everything that he was asked to do. And the steward's accusation just caused confusion. And so we see that these brothers are overconfident as we look at verses 7 to 12. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. 
We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well, then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave, and the rest will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Oh, no. <laughs> what we see here first is just this a character quality of honesty. They've changed over 22 years. The brothers were confused by the accusation because they did not do those things like that. They were not characterized as thieves. They even reminded the steward that they had brought back the silver they had found in their sacks from the first visit. He's like, we weren't trying to hide anything. We brought this all back. They were honest men who would never think of stealing silver or gold from his master's house. But then we see this penalty. Man, these guys are pretty rough, aren't they? They're, they're saying what their own penalty or punishment should be. They are so confident that none of them had taken the silver cup that they proposed the death penalty for the offender and slavery for the rest, for the rest of them. We saw the same confidence in Jacob when Laban caught up with him and accused him of stealing his household gods. We saw that in Genesis chapter 31, verse 32. This is what Jacob says, But if you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live. We have this confidence, right? Because Jacob didn't know that Rachel had taken the gods. Judah and the rest of his brothers had no idea that the silver was put back in their sacks and the, the silver cup was put there. Hamilton says, but one can be generous with proposals when one is convinced that little is at stake, right? We can say all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, you can put me to death if you find this in my house and you find it. Whoops. I didn't really mean that, right? That would be our response. I didn't really mean that you could put me to death. The brothers, like Jacob, are willing to put uh, the death penalty on the table because they are unaware of the deception that's taken place. And so if the silver cup was found in any of their sacks, that person would be put to death and the rest of them would become Joseph's slaves. Now the steward agrees. Remember what he says here? He says, okay, we'll just do what you say. But he's agreeing to the principle. You see that, right? Because he doesn't say, okay, if we find a cup and then you have your uh, sacks, then they're going to be put to death. No, he says, he, he modifies it. He, he's uh, agreeing to the principle that the thief should be treated differently than the rest of the brothers. But he counters their penalty by saying that the thief would be his slave and the rest of them would be free from blame. The reason he's doing it is that he has insider information, right? He put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. He already knows it's going to find it. He already knows it's there. So he's like, I can't do this because if we do the death penalty, it's not going to serve Joseph's purpose. He wants to see if there's a change of heart. And so the speed with which they lowered their sacks to the ground speaks of the certainty that they had of their innocence. The steward begins his search with the oldest and proceeds to the youngest. He knows that information because he'd been there at the banquet the night before when Joseph set them in that order. Laban searched Rachel's tent last, but did not find his gods there, Genesis 31, 33, because she had hidden them. And then um, the steward finds Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack, 
And he's not surprised because he was the one who put it there. Imagine had he not found the silver cup in his bag. Wait a minute. Where did that go? <laughs> this isn't going to work out so well. But it was still there. And so the brothers are surprised, though, because they wouldn't have imagined that it was there. They knew that they hadn't done it. So their reaction shows a change of heart. You see, God transforms our heart. Verse 13, then, we see that they are overwhelmed. Look at that verse with me, if you would. Still got to get these out. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. So you see that they're overwhelmed. They tore their clothes. Matthew says in his commentary, spontaneously, the brothers tore their clothes, which was the sign of deep emotional distress, that all the brothers suffered such distress as a telling sign of the new sense of unity they had developed. And Wolk, he goes on and says, they now show affection for their father and brother. 22 years earlier, they were plagued with selfishness, jealousy, envy, and anger. They didn't even think or care how Joseph's death would affect their father emotionally. They knew now. All they cared about was appeasing their jealousy, envy, and anger at Joseph being the favored son. That had changed. God had transformed their hearts over the 22-year period. They are distressed and filled with grief over the unexpected turn of events. And so that leads us to our first principle today, is that grief over our sin honors God. And let me give you some just biblical background for that. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, and starting at verse 14, we read these words. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I, do not, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I uh, do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? We also see David writing in the psalm, Psalm chapter 51, verses 13 to 17. He says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And here's the important one. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We see that God desires that we grieve over sin. And then Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers in chapter 7, verses 8 to 11, we read these words. 
Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So verse 10 is so powerful there. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. That's grieving over our sin. And God is honored when we grieve over our sin. Joseph's brothers were experiencing godly sorrow that brought repentance and led to salvation with no regrets. So a couple of questions for you today to apply it to yourself. Are you grieving and sorrowing over your sins or are you just like, um, I just, I can't seem to get, have a victory over this. I'm just going to keep doing it. No big deal. Are you genuinely repentant of your sins, which means that you're willing to turn away from them? And when we recognize how our sin grieves, the Lord, we should be willing to truly repent so that we can experience salvation without regret. So I encourage you this morning to take a moment to examine yourself. Be honest with yourself and with God. He already knows. Maybe then you'll be ready to take this first next step, and that's to honor God by grieving over my sin so I can experience salvation and forgiveness without regret. Joseph's brothers expressed godly sorrow by tearing their clothes. The brothers loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Gango and Bramer say, This time they would not leave a younger brother, a favorite of their father, to become a slave. This shows they had changed since selling their brother Joseph into slavery about 22 years before. Benjamin was not only Jacob's favorite, but also the Egyptian ruler, the ruler's favorite. Joseph had given him five times the amount of food at the feast the night before. The brothers passed the test by not being envious and showing self-sacrificing love by giving up their own freedom and lives for Benjamin. And so they are definitely overwhelmed by the chain of events that have just transpired. But Judah takes the lead then to represent the brothers as they come before Joseph again. They just have barely gotten out of the city and now they're back. And so our second point this morning is confession. And it's the rest of this, verses 14 to 34. But we're going to look first at submission. Verses 14 to 17. Look at those verses with me if you would. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you've done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And so we see the submission, the brothers' uh, reaction when they get back. When they arrived back in the city, Joseph was still in the house because he already knew that they were going to be back, right? He had planned all this. They threw themselves to the ground, which is different than the first two times that they came into his presence. First two times, they just bowed in, in respect for his position. 
And that would have been appropriate for that day and age. This time, they prostrated themselves. They were lying flat on the ground, which showed submission. They were prepared to serve Joseph as slaves. And we see Joseph's response then. He continues the ruse by asking them why they did it. He also continues to play along with the idea about divination. Didn't they know he could find things out by divination? We know it wasn't divination that gave Joseph the knowledge about his silver cup being in Benjamin's sack. (laughs) Joseph had staged everything to expose his brother's true feelings about their father and his favorite son, Benjamin. Then we see Joseph's confession. He admits that they don't have a defense. What can we say? I mean, it was there. It was clearly in the bag. He acknowledges that God has uncovered their guilt. Now, the uncovering of their guilt goes far deeper than the silver cup and the payment for the grain being found in Benjamin's sack. Judah's conscience had been pricked, and he realized that God was holding he and his brothers accountable for how he had treated Joseph and their father all those years ago. Wearsby says, It's when guilty sinners' mouths are shut and they stop defending themselves that God can show them mercy. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Our second principle today is this, that our sins are not hidden from God. Judah and his brothers recognized that their sin was not hidden from God. Therefore, God was holding them accountable. They would become slaves. Think about this. Again, Jackie read this passage this morning. When the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to remain on the east side of the Jordan. They came to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders of the community to ask permission. They were given permission with one condition. Their men would arm themselves, go ahead of the other tribes into the promised land, and help them defeat the inhabitants. Moses warned them with these words that you heard already this morning. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find find you out. So the Israelites' sin would would not be hidden from God. After they go into the promised land in Joshua chapter 7, we read about how Achan devoted or coveted a beautiful Babylonian robe, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels from the plunder at Jericho that was all supposed to be devoted to destruction for the Lord. When the Israelites tried to attack Ai, the next city, they lost because there was sin in the camp. No one else knew about it, but God did. Hamilton says, this is God's way, says Judah, of visiting their past misdeeds upon them. They withheld mercy from Joseph. Now God will withhold mercy from them. They deserve what is happening to them, even if they are not guilty of this particular crime. Here is a graphic illustration of the Bible's emphasis on God's justice. The wrongs one does will be repaid some way, somehow, somewhere. You and I have to recognize that our sin is not hidden from God. The principle is the same for us. God knows when we sin, it's not hidden from Him, even if it's hidden from everybody else. So are you dealing with a quote-unquote hidden sin that only God knows about? Are you recognizing today that God is holding you accountable for that sin? You can confess it today. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're ready for that second next step today, and that's to confess my hidden sin to the Lord 
and embrace his forgiveness. Judah acknowledged their sin and knew there was consequences. Judah states that all 11 brothers are now Joseph's slaves. Joseph knew that he could not hold all 11 brothers accountable. That wouldn't be right. Only Benjamin would become his slave. The rest of the brothers would go back to their father in peace. But Judah knew the outcome of Benjamin not returning to his father, so he asks to speak with Joseph privately. That's verses 18 to 34. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord, ask his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to our servant, my father, to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, We cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my life, that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when we go back uh, to your servant, my father, And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with with his brothers." How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And so we see here that Jacob is giving himself up as surety. He addresses Joseph with respect as my Lord, and he recognizes Joseph's position that he's equal to Pharaoh. And then he recounts history. I'm not going to go back over. We all know what happened when they went the first time, when they came home, how they got back there, all those things we just read about. But um, what we see here is that God transforms our heart. Our third principle this morning is this, and it comes out of Gangle and Bramer's commentary. True repentance involves a change of attitude and action, not just tears and regret. What a change and transformation that's taken place in Judah's heart and mind, and the other brothers. He was no longer thinking about himself, but was concerned about his father's well-being. He was no longer consumed by jealousy, envy, and anger, but rather love and concern for his father's favorite son, Benjamin. It had taken 22 years, but an incredible transformation had taken place. Jesus transforms our hearts so that the motivation behind our actions are pure and not selfish. You see, our love is transformed. We no longer love someone because they love us in return. But what we see in 1 John 4, 19 is that we love because he first loved us. Our forgiveness is transformed. 
We forgive others whether or not they seek forgiveness or apologize. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Our actions are transformed. We no longer do things out of selfishness, only thinking about ourselves. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our whole lives are transformed. We no longer desire to follow the patterns of this world. Paul, writing to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, tell us this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So maybe you're ready for this third next step today, and that's to truly repent of my sins and allow God to transform my attitudes and actions. That's what happened to Judah and his brothers. He had been transformed by God. They, they had been transformed by God. And so we see <clears throat> the continuation of that transformation when Judah just begs Joseph, please let me take Benjamin's place as your servant so, we can, so he can return home with my brothers. Judah was substituting himself for Benjamin. He was his surety, his guarantee. Jesus substituted himself for us. He was our surety, our guarantee. Hebrews 7.22 says this, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus took responsibility to make sure we would come to God the Father. We see that in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. This is what God's word says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ, a relationship with him. Are you ready to come to the Father through Jesus Christ? You have to admit to God first that you're a sinner. You have to recognize, I'm not a good person. We're all born a sin, as a sinner with that sin in our lives. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All includes every one of us. No one's exempt. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What we earn or deserve for our sin is to be separated from God for all of eternity. But the second part of that verse is beautiful, isn't it? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we just have to admit that we're a sinner. Then we have to believe in Jesus and what he came to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 tell us this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he came alive again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about him. He died, was buried, and came alive again. Then you just have to choose eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 16, pretty familiar verse, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're ready to take that step today, on the back of your communication card, under the sections, on the right side, it says, send me info about, just mark the little circle that says, becoming a follower of Jesus. That's what that's all about. Admitting our sin, believing in Jesus, choosing everlasting life. Judah says, don't let me return home without Benjamin and see the misery on my father's face. This shows incredible leadership. That's the fourth principle today is that leadership means speaking up and taking a stand. That's exactly what Judah did. And in fact, Judah's line is where all the kings came from, from Israel. He was the leader. He stood up. He took responsibility. God had transformed Judah's heart. God transforms our heart. You know, as we come to just review today, are you ready to honor God by grieving over your sins so you can experience salvation and forgiveness without regret? Is there a hidden sin you need to confess to the Lord? Is it time to truly repent of your sins and allow God to transform your attitudes and actions? Are you ready to follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? You know, as a body of believers, we can do all those same things. We need to honor God by grieving over our corporate sins. We need to confess any hidden sins to the Lord. We need to truly repent of our sins and allow God to transform our attitudes and actions. Anne Rice, whom the media has called the queen of the occult, has sold millions of novels about vampires and witches. Several of her books have, been, have also been made into movies, uh, even starring Hollywood big shots like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. But since a near-death experience in 1998, Anne has had a change of heart. She's turned to Christ. In 2005, she stunned her fans by declaring, I promised from now on that I will only write for the Lord. Her November 2005 release, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt, portrays Jesus as a seven-year-old, and the veteran author worked painstakingly to avoid contradicting Scripture in her interpretation of Jesus' life. The book was released in November 2005, and as of December 7, 2005, it remained on the New York Times bestsellers list at number eight. In the afterword of Christ the Lord, Rice summarizes what she has found in Jesus, calling him the ultimate supernatural hero and the ultimate immortal of them all. In an interview with Christianity Today in December of 2005, Rice said, Christianity achieved what it, um, what it did because Jesus rose from the dead. You can experience that change of heart today by admitting that you're a sinner, believing in Jesus, and choosing everlasting life. You can also have a change of heart today if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, but there's some hidden sin that you need to deal with. Or there's just some attitudes of your heart that you need to confess to the Lord and truly repent of. And so, I encourage you to do that today, to reflect upon that. As the worship team comes and the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you today. <clears throat> Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. That it has the power to transform us, Lord. We pray that you would just begin that process in those that have never made that decision for you. And Lord, would you continue that process of transformation in those that need to return to you? 
Just revive us, Lord God. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.